0: Hello. This is weird. Um, If you've listened to the canonical 37th, I think, episode... Uh, Just with Eddie and Jordan, I'm sure they'll have explained the situation with our last recording. Uh, To be fair, a lot of that episode was just me recounting things to the guys, reporting back on my findings, so this shouldn't be too strange. But it is unusual, I've never monologued to this extent before, except in my head. There's nobody to bounce off, I'm just staring at a wall, listening to my own voice without yield. But maybe it'll normalise as we go on, but apologies in advance. Uh, I'm going off notes here so if I occasionally sound stilted or like an audiobook, that's the reason and because this is fundamentally an unnatural thing to do but let's crack on with it anyway so the first topic of well it's not conversation but the first sermon will be about the Mike Pence Kamala Harris debate by the time you're listening to this it will have happened at least a couple of weeks ago such as the nature of our release schedule but fuck it I thought I'd preface the breakdown by giving you a sense of where I'm at, as it were, politically, philosophically. Obviously, it's impossible to condense everything I believe about everything, but I'll give you a quick taster. The definitions and parameters of what qualify as left-wing or right-wing are flexible. They keep shifting more and more these days. I think I instinctively lean towards small-c conservative, They're definitionally less mobile, and that appeals to me. Uh, I believe in personal responsibility, individual rights, individual liberties. I am not at all religious, though there's much about certain faiths that I admire. I don't believe that all faith systems are equally virtuous or equally vile, though I believe you have the freedom to practice whichever you want, assuming you're not infringing on the rights of others. I love the arts, but that doesn't mean I think the government should be paying for it. I think your sex life is your business, and conduct it however you damn well please, within the bounds of the law. But that doesn't mean I think promiscuity is totally healthy or totally dignified. I believe in abortion, up to a point. I believe generally in drug legalization, but that doesn't mean I think snorting coke on the daily is a recipe for success. There's that tension in me between the personal and the political. There are things I believe that are traditionally liberal, and things I believe that are traditionally conservative, Anybody that doesn't risks being an ideologue and you should be wary of them, I think. I believe in data, looking at the facts, looking at the evidence. But freedom of speech, that's the biggie. And currently, the right are the ones defending it. I don't use words like liberal to describe the modern left because I don't think they apply. I think the modern left as a political monolith and a cultural entity is deeply wicked, not to mention stupid. But I try to be fair. There are sensible voices on the left, but they are few and far between. Such people are typically considered or called conservative by the new hegemony, because parameters shift. What was once radical leftist thinking has infused the centre-left, almost entirely from my estimation. All to say I do have a bias, like everybody. If I have to plant a flag somewhere on the political spectrum, it would be centre-right, for what that's worth. Even though I think in an American context, the Republicans have been historically quite odious in many ways, and Donald Trump is, to say the least, not the best on offer. I've said before, I pay attention to what he and his administration do, not his rhetoric. Admittedly, that's a compromise one shouldn't have to make, but I will take his swaggering bullshit bravado over the carefully constructed and sinister countenance of the woke left any day, those that ravel in identity politics and function as apologists for violent thugs." I am conservative in other ways to transcend present considerations, but if there was a Democratic candidate in the mold of a Sam Harris or a Brett Weinstein or an Andrew Yang, and if I was American, they would have my vote. Over Trump, anyway. I'm not really a political junkie. I'm not fully fluent in matters of the economy and a lot of insider political stuff. I care mainly about ideas and culture. So, anyway, on to the debate. So first and foremost, I think the format is stupid, right? They should just duke it out with a moderator just controlling the chaos. And then if one is monopolizing the time, moderators should step in as a referee and give the other person a chance. You know, this three minute, two minute, 15 second, bite-sized apportionment thing clearly just doesn't work. So I think they should just scrap it. I think the Democrats in particular have been media trained to look down the camera and make eye contact with potential voters. Pence did this a little bit, but do you really feel as if they're talking to you? Isn't it just transparent and kind of cynical? There was a lot of talk about, um, a lot of talk of what we would have done if. Right, what we will do is fair. It's incumbent upon you to say what your plans are, but I'm not interested in what we would have done. It's meaningless, it's all too easy to snipe from the sidelines. And I actually don't know how much we're able to criticize the handling of the pandemic. You can compare it to other nations and other developed nations, but each country has its own unique topography and problems. I'm not saying they're doing a good job. They could be doing a terrible job. I have nothing to compare it to, nor does anybody else. You know, the fact is Americans are not going to be as docile as the Chinese because their communist government can make them stay indoors. Even internationally, it's been state handled, so it's very difficult to judge. Plus, each virus has its own beast, so you can't even compare it to historical equivalents, you know, that it can't even be judged on that level. Are we saying that anything other than zero deaths is a failure? Because, as I've said before, and, you know, certainly not a Sam quote, but the perfect is the enemy of the good. On a human level, one death is obviously too many, as Pence pointed out. But on a pragmatic scale, what's the threshold for gross incompetence? And that's not a facetious question, I would like to know how they measure it. But I think we have we have to have a degree of humility when we talk about how our leaders have handled the pandemic I guess it comes down to personal uh, taste I suppose but a lot of it comes down to the manner of each candidate their vibe unfortunately Kamala Harris has an incredibly smug demeanor she's instantly unlikable for me anyway and just for the sake of balance Mike Pence looks like he's plastic all right there's some balance uh, but yeah, I found her very irritating. When he's interrupted, he says, if I may finish, Senator. When she is, it's all, I'm speaking. I'm, th- I'm speaking. He just comes across as classier, and that's a theme that will recur throughout the debate. But I'll talk about Pence first. Um, I thought he was broadly decent. Uh, I liked that he thanked Harris and Biden for their concern for Trump, which was a stand-up move. I liked that he finishes speaking when he wants to but not in that bulldozing Trump fashion. He's just he's going to make his point and then wrap up. As for his highlights, um, there, was, there was a point where Kamala Harris accused Trump of bad-mouthing soldiers or something like that. And Pence tries to respond to it, but uh, he's out of time. So the moderator is like, Mr. Vice President, we, we got to move on, we got to move on. And ultimately he yields he's like, oh, go on, go ahead, move on. And then uh, the next question is for him. And he says... Uh, thank you for your question, but I'm going to use some of my time to respond to that last statement. That was a moment of subtle awesomeness there for me. Uh, to employ Eddie's vernacular, what a G. I think he also, uh, other highlights were talking about standing with law enforcement and his condemnation of the media. Uh, they, they were talking about the case of Breonna Taylor and Harris claimed that the cops should have had harsher sentences uh, drawing on her experience as a prosecutor. And Pence was like, Uh, I trust the justice system and the impaneled grand jury. I mean, it's strange that you don't, given your history as a prosecutor, but you're entitled to your opinion. That was another another G moment. Uh, He wasn't perfect. Far from it. He parried the question about the Rose Garden event where they didn't follow social distance protocols. uh, Nor did he answer the question whether a president's medical situation should be public record. Uh, But now for Kamal Harris. This will take a little bit longer. I actually didn't hate her for most of it. But as soon as she said she was the first black woman to X, Y, Z, everything that followed was a little compromised. If you use identity politics in any way, that tints any subsequent utterance for me. I can't take you as seriously as I otherwise might have. Uh, she said that Joe Biden would be only the second Catholic president. So? That's one of the weakest superlatives milestones I've, I've ever heard. It would be fairly meaningless if it was just the first, but the second, he'd only be the 46th president full stop. Incidentally, JFK was the first Catholic president and he died in office, just saying. Uh, at one point, she claimed, the one thing we know about Joe, he puts it all out there, which is a pretty poor choice of words for someone who's been accused of sexual assault. She felt the need to explain the terms debt and bounty, and not fleetingly either, as, as part of some like larger paragraph, she, I don't know, maybe it's... Is that her shtick, being condescending? You know, she, she said, oh, and there, there's a debt. And you know what debt is? It means when you owe someone money. Like she took time out to provide those uh, definitions, you know? Um, yeah, and not to cast dispersions on her core audience, but I don't think they need the terms debt and bounty explained to them. Maybe they do, I don't know. They were talking about the Supreme Court nomination, and she brought up Lincoln... Uh, so basically, I think 27 days or so before Lincoln, uh, either it was either re-election or he was leaving office, uh, he had the opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court judge and he didn't do it, basically saying that, oh, you know, it, it would be moral to have an election first and then whoever wins should nominate the Supreme Court judge. And she was using that as an example against Trump and co, you know, saying, well, he did it, so why can't you? Why are you doing the opposite? And I just think... I hear this a lot with Reagan. Whenever, you know, I've seen conservatives being interviewed, uh, the interviewer will often say, well, Reagan believed A, but you believe B. How can that be? I mean, very traditional conservatives only have one God. They don't idolize people in this way. But it's so emblematic of leftist thinking, isn't it? This absolutist approach, everything or nothing. Anyway, the idea was that it's inappropriate to nominate a judge this close to an election, as if the Democrats wouldn't do exactly the same fucking thing. And if they did, they would have a right to do that. They were elected. I don't understand this at all, the, the blatant hypocrisy of it. Uh, she criticised the administration for ignoring social distancing measures, but then when she was talking about George Floyd and the protests, uh, she says... Perfect strangers of all sexes, genders, blah, 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 blah. Marched shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand. Yeah, that doesn't sound very socially distanced to me, Keha. If it was only a metaphor, it'd be a poor choice of words, but we all know it's all too literal. I recommend that you... I saw it a couple of days ago, or yesterday, maybe. I recommend that you YouTube Kamala Harris on Rachel Maddow's show. Uh, she's asked about the fly that landed on Panther's head at one point, and her answer... They basically just laugh, right? But it's one of the most gurning, artificial things I've ever seen. She might even be less sincere than Hillary Clinton, and that is saying something. Considering the vast majority of actors are lefties, they need to give their guys a couple of lessons because the performances are fucking atrocious. Uh, But to me, maybe the most egregious, certainly the most annoying thing, was in that second bout of I'm speaking, I'm speaking, uh, Pence interrupts her and she adopts this expression that basically says, wow, exhibit A of white male privilege. This kind of appalled smirk, like, I can't actually believe this is happening. Her mouth agape, she's stunned, gobsmacked, shell-shocked at witnessing this flagrant peacocking of the patriarchy. Make no mistake, that reaction is a complete confection, designed for post-match commentary. She's been a politician for years. What, she's never been interrupted? This is a debate. The point of a debate, while remaining somewhat within the realm of common courtesy, is not civil conversation. It's to trounce your opponent in front of other people on a stage and humiliate them. Uh, The last question kind of cemented it for me, though, um, from an eighth grader, uh, ostensibly. It was something like, if our leaders are so hostile to each other publicly, how can normal Americans be expected to get along And, I mean, let's just operate on the presumption that that question actually makes sense. But Pence actually answered the question. He brought up Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia, how they you know, two Supreme Court judges that were as far apart as possible on the political spectrum. But after their deaths, you know, we found out that their families uh, were friends and they got along all these years. And, uh, you know, his point being that when we leave this stage it's not necessarily as hostile um, or acrimonious, you know, like a lot of us are friends. It was a classy answer. And then she just used it as a springboard to promote her guy. It was like, that's a great question. And that is why Joe Br- Biden would be a great, not Joe Biden, Paul Biden's brother. Uh, that is why Joe Biden would be a great president. It's just uh, icky and just zero class. The 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 whole thing really reminded me of a time before Donald Trump, what debates used to look and sound like when they weren't totally hysterical, though there was a bit of that. Uh, All in all, I'd say that the first debate, the Trump-Biden debate, nobody won. Everyone was a loser, America especially. In my opinion, Pence won this debate, flat out, really. Uh, But I'll just say this, again, I guess, for balance. In a hypothetical where I'm American though I think we all cast a psyche vote anyway. If we could ensure that this madness would end by electing Joe Biden, right? The Black Lives Matter would pipe down. There wouldn't be a swathe of the population convinced they were living under an autocratic regime and would necessarily chill out because there'd be nothing they felt they had to tear down. Although I think they're wrong, wrong, wrong about basically everything, I would vote for Joe Biden. But we can't guarantee that and the left has gone off the deep end, so I'm not going to argue that the you know th- there's definitely a problem of escalation one side kind of propping up the other in term- you know in in madness but i would contend that the radical nutty left created the situation that is donald trump not the other way around donald trump is not the grandfather of the fractured west it predates him and will endure after he is gone uh but you know the usual buzzwords have emerged after the debate mansplaining that's been brought up a lot is anyone else tired of these neologisms? Even if you're broadly sympathetic to the left-wing liberal, whatever word you want to use, cause, I, I don't... You must be tired of having to constantly update your language. They're trying to introduce manterruption now into lexicon. That's been doing the rounds. I saw recently that Merriam-Webster, um, I think it was in... You know, Amy Conan Barrett, the, the judge that the re- Republicans have nominated for the, for the Supreme Court, she used the term sexual preference at one point, and it was brought up as a derogatory thing because it implies that one has choice over one's sexual inclinations. Uh, But sexual preference has always basically been a synonym for sexuality. Uh, You know, I've never really thought that what's-your-sexual-preference meant that, you know, oh, I could fuck women, but, you know, I I really just choose to fuck... No, it's, it's ridiculous. It's always meant that. Um... But anyway, the point is, Merriam-Webster added that as a like. I think it's the fifth definition now on their website. A derogatory term meaning this. And, I mean, it's actually in the dictionary now, you know? But I say if we're going to embrace man-terruption, let's equalise the playing field. Quim-terruption. Let's add that to the fucking dictionary. I have no I listened to the Adam Buxton podcast... Um, I recommend it if you don't I don't agree with him on much but it's not like it's a political or you know it's, it's, it's him just talking to celebrities really anyway his most recent episode at least at the time of recording is with Robbie Williams and I've seen a few interviews with Robbie Williams in his more latterly mode uh, you know his thing historically has typically been that smug obnoxious gurn you know strutting about the stage but he seems to have become self-conscious or self-aware about that. I saw him on Graham Norton and it, this has been like two years ago or something, and it wound me up. His thing now seems to be a degree of self-deprecation, like telling stories where he comes out as the fool. Now that he's not the hot young star, you can have some hindsight on it all, but his anecdote, if I remember correctly, ended with him getting a hand job from a maid. What, am I supposed to endear me to you, is it? Or endear him to me, however that works. Uh, anyway, on on this podcast, uh, the Adam Buxton podcast, he's trying to talk very earnestly about his persona, his regrets, what he's doing now. And it sort of becomes kind of meta. Adam Buxton, he starts by saying that, you know, Robbie Williams is a friend of a friend. And this friend came to Adam and said, oh, Robbie would love to do the show. And Buxton basically says that he's always wary of those situations uh, in terms of, you know, what's the motivation of the person who wants to come on. Um, and Robbie sort of, I'll, I'll just say Robbie. Uh, he tries to analyse his intentions for being there. It's obviously indulgent and it, it's trying to be sincere and self-reflective. The point is, I don't know where he stands. I can't quite get a read on him. It's difficult to tell whether he's earnest or a carefully crafted impression of humility. I recommend listening to it. It's it's not quite as interesting as I made out, <laughs> uh, but yeah, just trying to determine whether he's for real. I guess I think part of it is because he's not very naturally eloquent, and so when he talks, he, he's trying to be he's trying to be reflective, but it comes across as stilted and awkward. It's just got a whiff of artifice about it. Ultimately, it's worth listening to just for the point where Robbie Williams, Robbie Williams. Uh, starts talking about the futility of life and his general conviction that something is up. He's talking about ufology and pixies and says that he reads up on all that sort of mythological and conspiratorial stuff. And what Robbie Williams has gleaned from this vast consumption of literature is that something is up. Thank you, Robbie, for your insights. I have no there's a new film on Netflix called The Forty-Year-Old Version. It's very been very highly acclaimed. Uh, it's like ninety-eight percent or something on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it's a film about a woman, a black woman in her forties, who's a playwright, uh, and she raps on the side. So I mean, that's enough to get you like eighty percent anyway, right there, just off the bat. But yeah, it's it's a film, and she she's writing this play about gentrification and her white producer tells her that she should include white characters and it just kind of it morphs devolves into this saccharine messagey movie of the week kind of play i mean the film's annoying in that general lefty woke way i only bring it to your attention because it's the second film i've seen where the climax is a rap that explicates the themes of the film the other is blind spotting a couple of years ago I mean, I don't count films like Eight Mile because, you know, they're about rappers and rapping. So, uh, but anyway, by my count, three makes it a trope. So I'm planting a flag and just saying, keep your eyes peeled. And finally, you'll be pleased to hear um, I was listening to Carl Pilkington. I listen to a lot of Carl Pilkington, um, you know, er habitually. Every year there tends to be a little binge, but he was on a podcast with Craig Parkinson. I can't remember the name of it, Um, but they they put a 10-minute clip on YouTube. Uh, It's just YouTube that. It's basically Pilkington not really being Pilkington. I think most people that talk with him, they just want to preserve that character. They feel they have the right to treat him like an idiot because Gervais and Merchant did. And, you know, they did An Idiot Abroad, so it's like the world has a license to kind of uh, patronize him. But Craig Parkinson didn't do that. He just talked to him. And it was interesting. It was quite heartwarming, really. And Pilkington said that people expect him to be Homer Simpson, like that, you know, trapped in amber, always the same. And the chat actually made me hate Ricky Gervais a bit. Not for bullying, per se, because I think that's sort of an agreed-upon thing, but... For creating that inescapable vacuum for Carl Pilkington. He's never going to be able to escape that idea of him as a simpleton, you know? Uh, it also made me think about the XFM podcasts, and it occurred to me that in this day and age, Carl Pilkington would be cancelled. And I think if nothing else illuminates the stupidity of this moment, it's that. Anyway, um... Yes, yeah, so he's on this show with Craig Parkinson talking about how he gets older and he wants to move on, do other things. Uh, and then I was thinking about it. You know, part of me has always wanted them to do a podcast again. But then I just think there are hundreds and hundreds of hours of content with those three online, and it made me think of how pop culture fetishizes repetition. I mean, it's an obvious thing. It's not like this profound moment. But it came with a character, a revelation, I guess. If you loved something just assume it's lightning in a bottle. Culture is so obsessed with what's next that we see a trailer for a new film and start wondering what the sequel will be about. We all fall victim to it. I'm not speaking from some elevated angelic position here. You know, a new great show or director comes along and we can't help but think of it as the beginning of something. Maybe we're hardwired to think that way with one eye towards the future. I don't know, maybe we have to, but let's take Parasite as an example as we do with so many things recently. I think a lot of people are going to be thinking that Bong Joon-ho has finally arrived. You know, he's finally achieved cinematic supremacy. Uh, you know, what the heck is he going to do next? And I just think, well, forget about it. Just take Parasite for what it is. Right, when I first saw that the reception for season four of Fargo wasn't as strong as the earlier seasons, bearing in mind, not bad, just not as strong, my heart broke a bit. But then I just think, there are three great seasons of Fargo. Things don't have to be amazing all the time. And I'm going to try not to think like that anymore. I think we have to assume it's not the beginning of anything. It just is what it is. Pilkington, Pilkington, goes on to talk about uh, watching clips of Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens died of uh, cancer, but he was still giving talks while going through chemo, you know, bald and looking, obviously, deathly ill. Um, And Pilkington made the point that, you know, I'm watching this guy who knows his purpose. He's dying and he didn't stop doing what he was doing because he thinks it's important. And that made Carl think, you know, you get one life, am I wasting mine? I don't know. Again, it's, it's easy, but it struck a chord with me. Anyway, that's all I got for you to end on that incredibly bleak or ponderous note. Um, I think, you know, To say something that has been said a million times before more eloquently elsewhere. Uh, COVID has made everyone a bit introspective, I think. And yeah, I don't know. Been thinking a lot about the passing of time and it's nothing. Yeah, I'm sure exposure to the world would cure it. But I also think there's a danger of uh, excessive (laughs) introspection, you know. That's where the, you get the smiths out of that. That said, I do love the smiths. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I hope you could at least tolerate stomach, this bizarre monological digression. Join us next time for more inane and bitter drivel. Ciao, ciao. Nobody. I have nobody.